Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, New and Emerging Therapies for Complex Epileptic Syndromes, is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Novus Medical Education, and is supported by an independent educational grant from Takeda Pharmaceutical Company. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this webcast entitled New and Emerging Therapies for Complex Epileptic Syndromes. I'm Joseph Sullivan, Professor of Neurology and Pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Elaine Worrell. Uh, Elaine, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Elaine Worrell. I'm a pediatric epileptologist and professor of neurology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, in this webcast, we're going to look at the new and emerging pharmacotherapies for treating patients with developmental and epileptic encephalopathies such as Gervais and Lennox-Gastaut syndromes. Before we get started, let's quickly review our learning objectives. So upon conclusion of this educational activity, participants should be able to define the terminology and prevalence of infantile and childhood onset developmental and epileptic encephalopathy syndromes, to identify the current treatment strategies for managing patients with both Lennox-Gastaut and Dravet syndrome, and some of the challenges that are associated with those, and to summarize the efficacy and safety profiles of newer pharmacotherapies for the management of patients with both Lennox-Gastaut and Dravet. So when we talk about the developmental and epileptic encephalopathies, um, these are, are um, early onset, very severe epilepsies, actually relatively common. The incidence is about 1 in 590 children prior to the age of 16. And these have very challenging seizures, very uh, abnormal EEGs, and very significant comorbidities, including intellectual disability, behavior, autism, things like that. And most of these have both what we call a developmental encephalopathy, which is the degree of encephalopathy that is due to the underlying cause, like a diffuse structural brain abnormality or a monogenic condition, as well as epileptic encephalopathy. And that's encephalopathy that's really um, due to the very frequent seizures and epileptiform discharge. And so we can see here on the graph um, what we mean by these terms. So um, you can see on the uh, y-axis there's, there's development, and then age is on the x-axis. And we see a normal developing child in black where um, that child continues to gain new skills. In a child who has a developmental encephalopathy, we can see really from the get-go that child's development is, is different. They gain skills at a lower pace. And if it's just a pure developmental encephalopathy, even when the seizure starts, which is shown by the hatched line, that child continues to develop. Conversely, if a child has an epileptic encephalopathy alone, the child's development is normal until the epilepsy starts, but once that epilepsy starts and there's frequent seizures, we see a plateauing of development. And in reality, most of these children have a combination of the two, so they have both a developmental and an epileptic encephalopathy. So we see that their development is slow even before epilepsy begins, but once epilepsy begins, there's even a further plateauing of their development. And when we look at the different um, syndromes that we see in neonates and infants and in children, associated with the DEEs. You can see here um, the early infantile DEE that used to be called Odahara syndrome or early myoclonic encephalopathy. It's now called early onset DEE. Epilepsy of infancy with migrating focal seizures. Infantile epileptic spasm syndrome, which is probably the commonest one that we see in, in infants. And then the one we're gonna focus on today is Dravet syndrome. And when we look in childhood, there's also a number of syndromes epilepsy with myoclonic atonic seizures, often um, initially 
um, uh, mischaracterized as Lennox-Gastaut. And then there's Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which we're going to focus on, um, DEE with spike wave activation and sleep, uh, febrile infection-related epilepsy syndrome, hemiconvulsion, hemiplegia, epilepsy syndrome, pretty rare, Rasmussen, and then some of the progressive myoclonus epilepsies. So, Joe, do you want to tell us about um, a little bit the evolution of Dravet syndrome over time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really like this idea of a developmental epileptic encephalopathy, right? It's a, it's a broad category of disorders, but in this world of, of genetic testing, I think we're able to be uh, much more precise, uh, as you showed in that, in that, that last list. But something um, we're going to go into a little bit more detail sure. today uh, is uh, Dravet syndrome. And this is a condition that I know is, both, uh, is near and dear to both of us. Um, in the sense that we have really, really come a long way, um, really first and foremost with making an early, an early diagnosis. And I think that um, that has really been driven um, by two um, big movements. One is the movement of genetic testing, uh, obviously, but the other is just, I think, improved awareness among uh, clinicians and our colleagues where no longer is Gervais syndrome considered one of these ultra-rare esoteric uh, diagnoses. And now it's very um, liberating to see when I go to conferences and things, and we, we talk to young residents, and it just seems like Dravet syndrome kind of rolls off the, off their tongue. Um, but I still think there's a way to go. We still, um, you know, these children, as you've shown in that slide, um, they start out um, neurologically normal um, for the most part and, and come in with their first-time uh, seizure, often in the setting of fever, uh, and are still, even today, I think, given a diagnosis of, of febrile seizure, though um, I think there are some, some red flags um, that exist in patients, even at that time, where someone should start to be thinking, I wonder if this is the first seizure that's presenting in someone um, with Dravet syndrome. And while it, someone may not be able to give that uh, diagnosis with the first seizure, if you have it on your radar screen and know what to anticipate, what could be coming over time, I think that's where understanding the evolution will allow someone to, to arrive um, uh, at that diagnosis. And so then they come in with their second, sometimes their th third seizure. That seizure may not be associated with fever. It may be a focal seizure where at the first seizure it was the left side of the body. The second time it was the right side of the body. Now, uh, in my opinion, these are where the, the, the bells and whistles should be going off and someone should really be thinking, okay, I think this might be a child presenting with Dravet syndrome and, and move on to, to genetic testing. I want to stress, however, that genetic testing, while it's, I think, aiding um, our ability to uh, be more certain about that diagnosis, maybe early in the evolution, there still are going to be some patients that, that come back and don't have a pathogenic variant in the SCN1A gene. However, if they fit this evolution, so with this presentation, evolving seizure types over time, one should not be afraid uh, of making a diagnosis of Dravet because I think, as we're going to show in this, this webinar, um, it's really important to have a precise diagnosis, not only so we can counsel families, um, but also so we can um, figure out how to treat them in the most precise and effective way uh, uh, possible. And then I think it's important to, to note that although this is a rare and, and catastrophic epilepsy syndrome, um, and these patients do have an increased risk of, of SUDEP, which is uh, maybe even as high as 15% of children um, by their early 20s, the majority of these children do live and become young adults. And so I think our next um, uh, real task is to try and identify all those young and middle-aged adults that are sitting in adult epilepsy practices, probably not with a Dravet syndrome diagnosis in hand because um, they often don't have the luxury of having 
the parent and caregiver give the story um, that can uh, explain the evolution of the syndrome that makes us now suspect uh, suspect that diagnosis. And so I think to any of the adult neurologists that are, are watching out there, uh, understanding this evolution and getting as much information about that early childhood presentation could really, really help uh, you arrive uh, at a more accurate diagnosis of some of those patients that are sitting in our clinic. So we also talked about, we're going to talk a little bit about Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And, and, and in the last five years, largely driven by clinical trials, it almost seems like these are lumped into sort of the same, we're going to do a trial in Dravet syndrome, we're going to do a trial in Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, yet I think we would agree there are very different syndromes. Very and I wonder if you could actually go over that a little bit. Sure. So I think where Dravet syndrome, I think it's often reasonably easy to make an early diagnosis. The presentation is pretty clear with those prolonged, often hemiconvulsive seizures um, after vaccination particularly or with, with fever. And then we also have, um, in most kids, the ability to really find that SCM1A variant, right? So we've got a, a nice genetic test I think it's more challenging to make an early accurate diagnosis of Lennox-Gastaut. So most of those kids, if you um, look at how they initially present, present with different types of seizures, right? There's a, a group, quite a number actually, that present with infantile spasms or some other early onset epilepsy, could be even, you know, focal or multifocal epilepsy. And then it really takes time for them to evolve. And um, there was that nice study that Ann Berg did looking at her Connecticut cohort and really found that it took probably close to two years on average mm -hmm. for a child to develop all of the clinical criteria so we could say very definitively, you know, yes, this is, this is Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. So I think um, in Lennox-Gastaut, we really are looking very much at the clinical presentation, the clinical criteria, and recognize that those seizures evolve. So it's, it's really important to, when you're seeing those kids, you know, ask about how those seizures are changing um, and recognize when they're changing. Um, the, the, I think the main seizure type that we see in, in Lennox-Gastaut are tonic seizures. Mm -hmm. Tonic seizures are, as you know, generalized stiffening of the body. Um, and we often see those at nighttime and they can be pretty subtle and sometimes families don't recognize them. And so it's not until you actually bring them in and do that overnight EEG, then you actually see those tonic seizures. And then in addition, they have, you know, many other seizure types, as you know, um, atonic seizures, myoclonic seizures, atypical absences generalized tonic-clonic, um, so lots of different different types of seizures, and many of them also, you know, bouts of non-convulsive status epilepticus, which are really problematic. And then, um, you know, as we see these kids evolve, what we often see is the EEG is evolving more from a hips arrhythmia or very abnormal pattern into more of a slow spike wave pattern. And then at nighttime, particularly with those, those tonic seizures, the generalized paroxysmal fast activity. So it really is one of a much more slow evolution than um, uh, than Dravet syndrome. And because we don't have, you know, a clear gene to look for, a clear cause that we can look for, we know Lennox-Gastaut really is multiple different causes that, right. that can lead to that. It's a tougher diagnosis to make early on. And I think it's also challenging as the people get older as well. So, you know, in, in childhood, we often see those recurrent drop seizures and the slow spike wave. As, um, you know, you get into your adolescent or your young adult years, oftentimes that slow spike, spike, the slow spike wave pattern um, goes away. And um, uh, we see um, uh, other seizure types, predominantly focal seizures. And so sometimes it's actually less clear that if you've not had that diagnosis early, that really what you have is Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. Mm -hmm. And to bring it back full circle, um, maybe you would agree that some patients with Dravet syndrome, as they become young adults, if they are just given this, you know, the old symptomatic generalized epilepsy of unknown cause, they may just be slapped on a 
Lennox-Gastaut syndrome diagnosis because our adult neurology colleagues feel more comfortable with that diagnosis, I think, than they do Dravet. And so it kind of becomes, it, it can get confusing, but hopefully um, hopefully we'll show that, that it is important, right, to be as precise as possible uh, in, in trying to separate these out. So as I mentioned, um, I think we both agree that having as precise a diagnosis as possible is, is important for so many reasons, but um, in particular, um, so we can decide how to approach these individual patients in a more um, rigorous and precise manner that hopefully is going to translate into improved um, quality of life uh, for these patients and their families. And so we all know that we have 30 uh, more or more uh, anti-seizure medications, uh, and many of them up until recently um, didn't actually have formal approvals, not only in pediatrics, um, but more specifically for some of these developmental and epileptic encephalopathies. And so I'm wondering if you could walk us through now in current 2023, how do we choose um, from this long list of medications to, to, to best serve these individual patients? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I think, you know, one of the, the really important things to do is to sort out your treatment goals, right? We know that these children with the developmental and epileptic encephalopathies have very, very frequent seizures, drug-resistant seizures. And so the likelihood that you are going to achieve complete seizure freedom is very, very low. And I think we really have to sort out what's an appropriate treatment goal, what is an appropriate degree of seizure reduction um, to really markedly improve quality of life. And often what I do is, I mean, I think it's a, a discussion that you have together with the family. Um, you're deciding on what are the most problematic seizure types so, for example, in, in Dravet syndrome, it's the prolonged hemiclonic seizures or the, the status epilepticus that's very problematic. For the kids with Lennox-Gastaut, it often are those drop seizures because that really is what's leading to injury. So you're really sort of focusing on, on what are the most problematic seizure types um, and then sorting out what is a reasonable degree of reduction. Ideally, seizure freedom, but as you know, that's something that's really tough to do. And I think um, also very importantly, it's not just about the seizures, right? It's the comorbidities that these patients have. So a lot of the, the um, intellectual disability, the behavioral challenges, many of these kids have, fall along the autism spectrum. Um, many of these children have sleep disorders. Sometimes they can have, um, you know, eating disorders or failure to thrive, um, attention difficulties. So it's really paying attention to those other comorbidities as well and making sure that you've got your team on board. And, and it really is, as you know, a team that you need to take care of these kids. And then I think, um, you know, sorting out um, medication-wise, being cautious not to, to over-treat. I think we certainly want to use the best and most effective therapies. Um, but I think we also want to be cognizant that we um, you know, once we have a child on three medications, if we're talking about adding another medication, we got to start thinking about what one needs to go so that we're avoiding sort of excessive polypharmacy Absolutely. and that we're using medications together in, in a rational manner. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we hear from our parents and caregivers, right, that um, seizures are still, um, for the, most of them, the number one priority to reduce, but a very close second Right. And third, all the things that you had mentioned, behavior, sleep. And, and I've often said, you know, even as someone with one of these highly treatment resistant epilepsies who maybe even is even having daily seizures, they're still spending the majority of their life not seizing. Right. I mean, it's all those other issues such as cognition, sleep, behavior that really are having a negative impact uh, on quality of life. And we need to be sensitive, uh, sensitive to those. Um, but in the spirit of, of efficacy. Right. Um, I think it's um, it's. Um, been really inspirational for, for me to finally have some data to back up some of the treatment decisions and choices that we're discussing with families uh, in the clinic. And I hope to go through just a, a little bit of that 
uh, um, right now uh, in terms of the different randomized controlled trials that have been formed in Gervais syndrome uh, over the last five years. And um, you know, what um, really got things, um, got interest, I think, sparked uh, in Gervais syndrome again was um, the trials with cannabidiol. Mm -hmm. um, though before I go there, I think um, it's long forgotten that there was a randomized control trial of a very good medication called Serapentol. Um, that was uh, studied in a small group of patients oh, 20 years ago and really had some pretty profound uh, uh, results um, with an overall reduction in seizures of about 70% uh, and with about 25% of those patients actually being seizure-free. Now, that clinical trial design was a little bit different than the other two trials that I'll go over here in a moment. They um, only kind of generalized tonic-clonic seizures and clonic seizures. It was a shorter uh, eight-week period, but it goes without saying that 70% reduction in seizures in this highly treatment-resistant group um, was pretty profound. And and I will I will note that that trial was done um, in conjunction with all the other all the children needed to also be on concomitant valproate and clobazam, and so therefore that has influenced sort of the labeling um, that we have here in the U.S. and also um, in in the uh, EMA. Um, but getting more into the last uh, few years, um, there have been uh, two other trials that have been done uh, in Gervais syndrome that have um, uh, published uh, data, and the first is is cannabidiol. Um, these randomized controlled trials um, are pretty much very similar in terms of their inclusion-exclusion criteria, um, four-week baseline versus a six-week baseline being followed over 12 to 14 weeks, and the countable convulsive motor seizures are being counted and compared from their baseline um, and, and compared to how they do uh, in treatment. Uh, and as we can see here, cannabidiol had a 43% reduction uh, in seizures compared to 27% um, percent, uh, with placebo. Uh, and then fenfluramine, there were two different trials um, that were actually done. So if we first look at the study that was done with fenfluramine without steropentol, we can see the results were very similar to what was seen in the steropentol trial, um, with an overall reduction in seizures of approximately 70%. And then fenfluramine had to be studied uh, in another trial where concomitant seropentol was given because of the drug interaction that we know exists there to make sure that we weren't overexposing uh, patients to fenfluramine levels. And as you can see, uh, the reduction in seizures here uh, was also um, quite good with 54% um, reduction in, um, uh, in overall seizures that correlating to a 50% responder rate uh, in the same, in the same um, degree. And so I'm wondering, you know, putting all that data together, how, how should a clinician, how do we put all this together? Like you said, it's a conversation with the family, but I'm curious, you know, how you, how you go through that, uh, uh, those data uh, in order to influence your practice. Yeah, right. So that's a very good question. You know, how do you actually approach these kids? And you've got, you know, a number of medications that have really been shown to be quite effective. Um, and so... Um, we actually worked together with a, an international group of child neurologists. You were involved as well. <laughs> and um, uh, did uh, surveyed the child neurologists. And we also actually brought families into this who had experience with using these medications in their kids and, and kind of had a good understanding for their kids and also for other families of Dravet syndrome, how they worked. And we came out actually with this international consensus statement. And so first line, um, uh, we thought was valproic acid. Now, that's interesting because that's a medication that's old, as you know, never been trialed in a, a randomized placebo-controlled trial. But I think there is um, a reasonable consensus that that is often a very effective medication for Dravet syndrome. And that's probably something that we should be looking at at first line. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the second line agents, as you said, the, the two newer ones, the uh, finfluramine and the steropental, both of those which showed about, you know, a 70% um, uh, reduction. Um, and so those are, are there in, in second line. Clobazam could also be used, um, particularly if you're using steropental, as you said, you need to use those together. And then third line, um, pharmaceutical grade cannabidiol, uh, fourth line toparmate and the ketogenic diet, and then others um, uh, further down the road. But it's also important what not to use, right? So in, in kids with Dravet syndrome, we know that the sodium channel blockers often significantly exacerbate seizures. And so we want to avoid things like oxcarbazepine, carbamazepine, lamotrigine, rafinamide, things like that. So those are medications that we really also want to avoid. Absolutely. This whole precision medicine approach, right, is equally important to, to know what to go to, but specifically yeah. in Dravet syndrome and, and maybe into a certain extent some medicine, medicines in Lennox Gasso syndrome, those, uh, those uh, to, to avoid. So in the, in the spirit of, of Lennox-Gasot syndrome, there was a similar, right, there was a similar um, consensus statement that, that was um, done um, um, by Helen Cross um, that also tried to look at all the data, um, but also their real-world experience, right, to see how this translated into um, sort of an algorithm, um, for lack of a better word, uh, or a framework, I think is better. Um, these things are not algorithmic, right? Every patient's going to be different. As you mentioned, you want to um, be um, sensitive to the, the most disabling seizure type, and that certainly is going to be the case uh, uh, with Lennox Gusteau. I think importantly in that um, uh, algorithm as well, she talked about the importance of looking at things, the non-pharmaceutical options, um, VNS, um, ketogenic diet, really pretty early and uh, because we know these kids are going to be drug resistant and sort of, you know, trying to avoid some of that polypharmacy as well. Absolutely. No, thank you for bringing that up. And, and callosotomy too. I mean, it seems so barbaric in so many ways. And I feel like it kind of has gone through sort of a pendulum swing where people stopped doing it. And then as we got new drugs, they came on. And then as you're running out of medication options and these poor patients are still having multiple falls and injuries um, each day, um, callosotomy, while it seems like a big step, um, can be very um, transformational uh, very in, in, in reducing those, those, drop, those yeah. drop seizures. So with um, that consensus statement um, in terms of a, a treatment algorithm for LGS, um, do you think that that is actually consistent with the data that has been shown in the randomized controlled trials in the LGS patient populations? Yeah, so I think when you look at the randomized controlled trials, there's been now quite a few medications that have been studied in that manner, right? And um, I think you know, all of the approved ones obviously have been shown to be more efficacious than placebo, but I think none are highly, highly efficacious, right? We, what we don't have is is a, a super helpful therapy that's really going to reduce seizures by 75% or 90% in a big chunk of patients with, with Lennox Gesto. Um, they're all, I think, fairly similar. And mm -hmm. so um, when I'm choosing them, I'm really looking at, you know, um, uh, what are the potential side effects, trying to choose those with lesser side effects. Um, there's some of the kids with Lennox-Gastaut can have very frequent seizures. And so while something like Pomotrogen is a really effective medication, it can be very challenging, to, especially if you're using it together with Velproate to, you know, twiddle your thumbs for three <laughs> months waiting for you to get therapeutic levels. Um, and so sometimes that's, that's problematic as well. So I think um, for a lot of them, um, really looking at what are the side effects, looking at um, how often do the medications need to be given, some of these medications three to four times a day, and that can be challenging for families as well. Um, but really, you know, looking at, at side effect and how they play with the other medications that you're, you're using them with. Absolutely. And in these trials, right, I mean, they, the similar designs and everything, and this term drop seizures, I know it's, it's criticized by some in mm -hmm. terms of, right, because what is a drop seizure? It's you know, there's very uh, extensive detailed definitions mm -hmm. for a clinical trial perspective. I think it's been 
um, helpful from a clinical trial perspective. So we're at least um, comparing um, apples to apples, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say that there aren't other seizure types, such as a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, that certainly will result in a drop. And if we actually have data for some of these compounds that suggest that for patients who are having that as a prevailing seizure type, maybe there is a, a slightly differential efficacy that favors its use. I think that's something also to, to take into to consideration. So yeah, so we're taking into all these, these points, right, where efficacy and reducing seizures is important, but as we said, this is all about quality of life, right? So it doesn't help these kids or their family and the caregiver burden if their seizures stop, but they're asleep all day, or they're eloping and running out of the house, and they almost increase the caregiver burden. So I'm wondering if you could go over how well are these medications tolerated, not only in the trials, but do you also feel, to put it back to you, does that translate <laughs> into real-world clinical practice? Yeah, so, um, so that great, great discussion. So I think, you know, first of all, um, steripental. Um, I think the biggest side effect that we run into that is sedation. Now, some of that I think is is um, because we're not cautious enough about reducing co-medication, particularly the, the clobazam. And we know that if we use together um, steripental and clobazam, that's going to drive the clobazam and the norclobazam levels up. So we need to be cautious about that. The other thing with steripental is um, I think, you know, when, when you look at the recommended dose, that's a good dose for a young child, but I think if you try and, and uh, you know, put an adolescent on 50 milligrams per kilogram per day, they're going to fall asleep. I think that's too big of a dose. So, you know, I think for, for many of these medications, you know, start low, go slow, and, um, and, and don't try and sort of hit that target dose right away. Um, so steripental can also, as, as can all of the medications we use for Dravet, pretty much reduce appetite. And that can be challenging as well because, as you know, kids with Dravet syndrome tend to, you know, kind of grow on their own little growth curve. They tend to grow slower than the other kids. They're often quite thin. And so that's a, a challenge as we're using these medications because all of these medications suppressing appetite also translates to poor growth. Um, when we look at fenfluramine, again, um, you know, that initially was marketed as, a, as an anorectic agent. So not surprisingly, it can cause some decreased appetite. But Again, I think if we watch these kids, it, it, that's a side effect in my experience that tends to go away. Mm -hmm. So using it at a, at a lower dose, watching the appetite, but oftentimes that does tend to go away. Um, there is potential concern, as you know, with fenformine for um, a cardiac valvulopathy and pulmonary hypertension. I think thankfully in the clinical trials and in, in um, the data so far since it's been licensed, that seems like a really, really rare side effect, but yeah. obviously it is an important um, uh, concern to discuss with families, and, and mm -hmm. all of these kids are going to need echocardiograms every every six months. And then cannabidiol, um, I think the biggest side effect that, that I see with that are sort of GI issues, yeah. um, some nausea, and particularly loose stools. Again, that seems to be a lower risk if you're starting it at a lower dose, um, and you're just moving up really slowly. And then some of these kids can also have um, some uh, some decreased appetite, sedation, and um, when used together with valproate, you can also see an increase in transaminases. Um, usually, that's a reversible thing, and I've never and uh, seen in my practice or uh, read about a child um, uh, developing liver failure with that. So I yeah. think just recognizing it's there um, and recognizing you need to watch the transaminases. Mm -hmm. and I think overall, for many of these um, these patients, these are overall pretty well tolerated agents. And does the fact that these medications act in different ways, does, is that, does that play a role in which ones you, you choose? Do you try and choose those with you know, different mechanisms of action? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where um, 
never knew I was going to have to uh, understand so much pharmacology. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's been helpful, right? I mean, to, so um, we try to use this term rational polypharmacy, right, to the extent that we understand at least the primary mechanisms by which each of these medications uh, work. And certainly if we have someone who is on a serotonin agent, um, we may not want to add another serotonin agent, maybe because that's not going to give us any more efficacy. Maybe it'll increase the actual serotonergic side effect profile. So we want to reach for something that maybe is non-serotonergic. And so this whole idea of rational polypharmacy and choosing differential mechanisms of action, I think, does uh, tries to accomplish two things. One, to improve efficacy with these non-overlapping mechanisms. And two, to minimize um, the adverse event profiles. Because if you just are pounding the same receptor, right, um, it should stand to reason that maybe the adverse events are going to be going to be higher, and then that's not going to translate into to good tolerability. And so, I think that's why, even though we've made so much progress and have new medications with novel mechanisms, we need more. Right? Um, we need more. We need more medicines with with novel mechanisms, and ideally, maybe even getting to more of a really precision medicine approach, uh, specifically with with conditions like Dravet syndrome. Um, where maybe we can actually target the actual uh, underlying genetic cause uh, itself. Well, that's a great segue going into our, our next uh, uh, part. Chapter three. Chapter three. Yes. So the third and final chapter is on novel treatments and their role in the evolving polytherapy paradigm. And so looking ahead, where are we going? I think one of the really exciting um, things that I've seen in the last few years is the focus on disease-modifying therapies. Um, and I think you know, now that we really have a much better understanding of many of the genetic causes of early life epilepsies, um, I really see this as a as an area that is is going to become much more um, widespread. Yeah, and that's super exciting. It's wild, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these disease modifying therapies, um, you know, really are targeting uh, what is the the channelopathy or what is the the pathogenesis that's leading to the seizures, but also leading to the significant comorbidities. And at least my hope, and I'm sure yours as well, is if we can identify these kids early and we have these disease-modifying therapies and we can start those therapies really early, boy, I think we can probably really um, change the, the long-term outcome for these kids, reducing seizures, maybe even making them seizure-free, really significantly attenuating those comorbidities or even preventing some of those comorbidities. Absolutely. And so there's some really exciting stuff in clinical trials, um, the antisense oligonucleotide, um, that's really targeting now Dravet syndrome, and that's, as you know, in clinical trials. Um, there is some gene therapies um, really, again, targeting Dravet syndrome that are likely going to be coming into clinical trials over the next year or two. So really excited about those. And, and as I said, we, we now have the technology, right? We know how to do this antisense oligonucleotides. We know how to get, you know, genes into people. Um, so we have all of these genes. I think it's it's going to be a much easier step yeah. to apply those more broadly. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm trying to be a cautious optimist here. I mean, these, some of these technologies, you know, I didn't even know <laughs> know anything about. Right. I mean, I think I put my foot in my mouth five years ago or so. Families would ask me, "Do I think gene therapy, you know, is going to be in 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 my career, my lifetime?" And I was pretty pessimistic about it because I was thinking it more in this classical sense. I think that people are aware of like. CRISPR and gene editing and all the complexities that are involved in a central nervous system disorder and a gene like SCM1A with it being so large. But now all of these other, you know, 
uh, approaches to try and you know upregulate um, that messenger RNA production and therefore into a functioning sodium channel is is super is super exciting. Um, and I say cautious optimist because I think everyone is proceeding like yes we want cure and you know what does cure mean never have a seizure and get someone back on their developmental trajectory maybe you know with time and as we refine these these approaches we will get there. But I think there's still going to be a need for what we would consider like conventional anti-seizure or symptom symptom management. Um, and so in that spirit of, of we need more medicines with more mechanisms, I'm wondering if you can maybe go over some of those ones that are sort of at various stages uh, sure. in the pipeline. Yeah, so I think, I think you're right. I think we are going to need some. And I think, you know, novel mechanisms different than what we have already um, is, is going to be still very, very useful for many of our patients. So maybe we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and, and talk a little bit about um, Ciclostat. It has been in clinical trials both for uh, Dravet syndrome as well as for Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. Um, and here's the data for Dravet syndrome. So in the uh, clinical trial, there was a reduction in seizures from baseline, 36.5%, um, compared to an increase, actually, 10% um, in, the, in the control group. And so that was really exciting, and that was uh, statistically significant. Um, this has also been looked at for, for Lennox-Gastaut, and maybe we'll move on to the next slide here. Um, and in here, the, the numbers were a little bit less robust, um, but overall about a, an eight, a 19 to 20% reduction um, in the treatment group versus about a, a 2 to 5% um, in, the, in the placebo group. This was not quite statistically significant, but I think also you know, potentially very important um, uh, for these patients. And overall, I think, you know, these were medications that were, or this was a medication that was pretty well tolerated as well. So no concerning uh, uh, severe side effects. Absolutely. And they, they've just released their data um, last week at mm -hmm. the American Academy, um, uh, looking at patients who were in their open label extension study. And after two years in the open label extension study, um, there was an, an overall reduction in seizures, 54% in the Dravet group and about 28% in the Lennox-Gesto group. And they did not find any new side effects. So I think this is going to be a really promising new therapy as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if we look at that, those Dravet numbers and put them in the context of the data we already reviewed, right, it falls in there. It's like yeah. cannabidiol. It's, you know, it's maybe not as good as steropentol and fenfluramine, but, you know, as good if not a little bit better, placebo-adjusted numbers for, for cannabidiol. And then um, the fact that it's actually having that durable, durable efficacy. So I think we'll, we're all excited to see the, the data readout from the, the phase three trials in, in, in both of uh, both of these uh, c conditions. And then I guess riding, you know, riding the serotonin sort of uh, uh, success uh, of fenfluramine um, and why is, is the serotonin pathway? I think there's a lot of interest uh, now, now in this pathway with at least three compounds um, in various stages uh, of clinical development. Uh, one that I'd like to talk about um, is actually uh, clemazole, which is a really interesting story that I don't have a ton of time to, to, to go into, but I know it well because it was uh, discovered by one of my colleagues, actually, uh, at UCSF in his zebrafish uh, model, where he basically uh, did a blinded uh, screen of many FDA-approved compounds to see which of them actually were anti-seizure in this SCM1A zebrafish model. And lo and behold, it was done in a blinded manner, and lo and behold, a number of compounds came out, um, but one of them um, was clemazole, which was initially a little bit of a, uh, why clemazole? It was, a, it was an antihistamine back in the 50s and 60s. It was taken off the market because other antihistamines became became available. And usually we don't think of antihistamines as being, sometimes we even think they're somewhat contraindicated right. in our epilepsy patients, right? <laughs> so why would this work in a, in a zebrafish model? And then lo and behold, when some further work was done, turns out the, the major um, secondary mechanisms and receptors that it binds to 
is actually the the, the serotonin uh, pathway. And so that's actually um, in um, a phase two trial uh, right now in patients with Dravet syndrome. To, to ideally see, I think the theme with a lot of these serotonin agents, um, because of the concern for cardiac valvulopathy that you mentioned um, with fenfluramine, because the, the dose is limited in those patients because of the concern of that, that valvulopathy, is could these other serotonin agents actually um, give us more uh, data as to which receptors are, are most important um, in terms of being anti-seizure? Uh, and would we actually be able to avoid some of the potential valvulopathy because of those serotonin receptor subtypes but still have improved efficacy and tolerability if we're focusing on other serotonin serotonin receptor subtypes. And so I think this is going to be a really exciting next 12 to 18 months as uh, a lot of these trials, I think, should um, actually um, have data to uh, to present. Uh, Another medication is is lorcaserin, which also was a a weight loss uh, medication, um, but a little bit more specific for the 5-HT2C uh, uh, receptor, which is not supposed to have the same, confer the same cardiac valvulopathy um, risk. And there's been some long-term um, studies uh, when it was used in the weight loss population of tens of thousands, I think up to 50,000 patients, um, where that risk of valvulopathy was, was exceedingly low. And we do have preliminary data um, um, that supports this as a use, supports its use as an anti-seizure medicine, not only in Dravet syndrome, but in some of the other um, developmental epileptic encephalopathies that we've already uh, uh, discussed. Um, and then this one uh, sort of basket study um, of various different um, epilepsy types, um, where Dravet syndrome represented the majority, there was an overall reduction in seizures of almost uh, uh, 50%. So something that is um, uh, not to be shied away from. And so certainly open label, uh, we need better controlled data, but that, that study is, is underway uh, uh, as well. And then the last uh, one is, is a medication that currently is being developed by Longboard and, and has this abbreviation LP352, um, is, is what's called a super agonist. So look at it as uh, lorcaserin, um, but even more potent um, for the 5-HT2C receptor with very, very small, almost little to no off-target effects on some of the other uh, serotonin agents. And this is actually being studied, again, in a basket trial, focusing on Dravet because we're trying to pick up on what we already know from mm-hmm. the success of informine. But is there really a underlying pathophysiology to an SCN1A patient that would make a serotonin agent only work in that patient population? I don't think we know. I mean, we saw the differential responses in the fenfluramine, Dravet, and LGS trials, but still effective in LGS, right? So I think um, I think casting a wider net, as much as we uh, um, uh, are very interested in Dravet syndrome and Linus Gustav syndrome, there are a lot of other patients out there that don't have those syndromes, right, that still have a huge unmet need for, for novel therapies uh, to be brought, to the, brought yeah. to the clinic. So let's take a second and review some of the practice pearls from this presentation. So I think we know that there are more treatment options for Dravet and Lennox-Gesto, and thankfully more coming coming down the uh, you know the corridor. Um, when we look at, at treatment for these kids, I think um, you know despite our, our best efforts, most of our kids are on, on polypharmacy, and so we really need to think about how we use that rationally. We want to choose medications with you know different mechanisms of action. We want to choose medications that are not going to sort of exacerbate side effects from one another. So I think uh, be cautious how to do that. Um, seizure freedom is the hope, but but I think still is probably not realistic for most of our kids with developmental and epileptic encephalopathies. And really important is balancing that quality of life and, and addressing some of those comorbidities. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So Elaine, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for joining me today uh, in this in this discussion. Uh, I hope that what we've presented to to you all um, is going to be helpful uh, in your clinical practice. And I want to thank you um, for for watching and for partnering with us in trying to improve the overall care um, that we can uh, give these patients. Thank you. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Novus Medical Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Takeda Pharmaceutical Company. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.